four to be shorter. But um, it's good to be tall, I guess. How tall six are you? Six three, yeah. Six three. Jeez, that's good, man. Do you play? Do you play nope. anything in sport? Nope. <laughs> Nothing okay. at all. I played basketball as a kid. Yeah. Because it just felt like everyone said that that's what I should do. Right. But Sorry. I love sitting down, having chat with people. Yes. Yeah. yeah yes. What do you Which do? I, you could do at any height, really. What do you do all day? What does a day look like in your life? Mm. God. Um, it's very different depending on on the day, really. Yes, that's kind of the the joy and the hell of doing full time comedy and um, yeah. doing lots of different things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this week I'm going to Sydney for a week of gigs at the store. I was just in Adelaide for two that's nights. Right. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, and yes, and then and then when I'm at home for a week, I'll just be writing, trying to write new jokes, and working on various projects, doing podcasts. Um, Living my life, That's and, you, and you're <laughs> saving and the you world. Do your greens podcast every week. I do. I yes. Listen to this morning. Oh, really? Yeah, the new one. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Thanks. What do you think? Good. I mean, well, depressed. <laughs> I mean, de- you know, depressed about the world. But you oh, know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not a pick me up. Sorry. Cool. Are we already recording? Yeah, man. We okay. Are. We are. This is it. We're in. We can get this into it. it. Yeah. We well, can actually, let's just roll into it. Yeah, let's roll into it. All right. Hello, All right, everybody. Take- Welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Herman. Uh, we have a special guest today. Dan, please introduce our guest, man. We're joined by a comedian, an actor. Right. Hero. Hero. Voice of a generation. <laughs> yes. Philanthropist. A big old... Billionaire gr- a, bi- a big old <laughs> Greens supporter as well. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't lead with that. You want people to listen to the whole thing. He'll turn it off. Tom Ballard, welcome to the show. Welcome Hello, the show, gentlemen. Man. Thank you for having me. Oh, now, the game of life, eh? Uh, yeah, I'll give you some context as to how I first sort of, I guess discovered you <laughs> please do i i think it would have been an appearance on good news week oh god yep. yeah and then i think i think it was after that you did the warehouse comedy dvd oh, yes these are deep, was, deep cuts it was essentially your coming out story which i which i loved mm-hmm. it was very it was very well structured oh thanks and a, you're a very good storyteller Really? Yes, oh, I would. I never felt that's been like that's my a good strength. And I've sort of, yeah. I've sort of followed you since. Like mm. I've sort of, um, I guess you're the um, gay Will Anderson. That's how I would describe <laughs> you. <laughs> nice. And less rich. Yeah. Well, less successful. Yeah. Let's make that very clear. It is crazy how much my career sort of has sort of followed in the wake of Will. Yeah. And. and and he is just the, the nicest, the most supportive guy. And yes, I, I owe huge amounts. There's lots, lots of other young Australian comedians do owe huge amounts to him. But yes, it's crazy. Triple J Breakfast hosted a show by the same production company that did Gruen. And yes, certainly the kind of stuff we like talking about on stage is very similar. But um, yeah, we're basically colleagues and peers. Yeah. <laughs> is that odd? Is that strange? It's crazy that I'm like mates with him now, yes. Yeah. And regularly throughout my career, I've had all these like, this is fucking crazy moments of like these people that I used to grow up watching that are my heroes that I try to play cool around as if it's not a big deal. You know, I get to be friends with them. And yes, we've hung out and I have their phone numbers and we'll have lunch. And yes, those are very, very nice moments. There's there's a question I wanted to ask you about money. Oh, God. Do you think the world would be a better place without money? <laughs> Harmon's a big old capitalist here. No, <laughs> no, Harman. and I'm more of a say, socialist. So no, when I say capitalist, I it's it's weird for me when people say tax the rich, tax the rich. I I, I don't know, I don't know about that. But I here's the thing about forming your opinions is that are you talking to enough people? 
to both sides to be able to form opinions. So mm-hmm. Like, no, I don't think so. Mm. So it's like, where are my opinions coming from? Maybe Instagram. Mm. So it's like, <laughs> exactly. So at least I'm fucking honest about it. Yes. Yeah, right. Totally. So yeah. at least. So whenever I talk to Dan, I talk, talk to him. So like, well, I don't know. It's like, but I haven't talked to people from the both sides to form opinions. It's like, I don't know actually what I'm saying. So again, you think that if, if we increase taxes on the rich, that will resu- remove incentives for people to work harder and innovate and do that kind of thing? Oh, you just think they should be able to keep all that money? Nom, 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 nom. Hmm. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> people often say if you tax the rich people rich people more, right. you r- remove the incentive for people to work harder hmm. to keep more of their money, right? So right. if they tax you, people, rich people often are just saying taxes are way too high. And if we lower taxes, hmm. uh, then that will encourage people to work more because they can keep more of their money, which will then eventually lead to growth i mean this is the basic of trickle down economics you know when you st- yeah. when we start talking about not taxing the rich to me that statement was weird so i'm not talking about what you're saying i'm talking i'm just talking about is that the only way that was my point when i was talking to dan so he thought oh he's a fucking capitalist <laughs> <laughs> and that was what i was saying he was like, sure, sure the only way to oh is, improve is it things the for only people? way that was right, right, right but i'd love to hear your thoughts on either side so that i can be much much well informed well i i would very much like to tax the rich way more um i mean we can tax the rich to redistribute money to make life better for people who don't have as much money that's good but I am also very much of the opinion that society, a society in which a small number of people have huge amounts of wealth right. and can like all this this money and wealth funnels into the hands of a tiny uh, group of people at the top of society, that's bad for everyone. That's bad for democracy. That's bad for our society because it means that those few people mm-hmm. are able to wield an outsized amount of wealth and power, which undermines democracy. God, this is just not funny at all. We've, we've just <laughs> no, no, instantly, if good. you get me on this track, this I'll good. fucking lose no, my no, mind. No, no, that's so like, yeah, so that's yeah. what capitalism does. It's like an economic system that just basically um, concentrates and funnels all the wealth up to the top to a small right. number of people. And then even though all, we all we get to do our own little vote, mm-hmm. those people, those billionaires, particularly in the billionaire class, are able to shape society to their will far more than you and I. Right. So I think it's anti-democratic mm. to have a capitalist society. To have so much power to, yes. a, to a very small section of people to manipulate the society. Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's important, I think, for reasonable people to be able to say that there is such thing as too much money. Right. That people can have lots, you know, can have a really lovely life mm. uh, without having $50 million. Right. And the idea that some people, even if you come, even if you invent something incredible, mm. right, that makes shitloads of money and improves everybody's life, that's a lovely thing to do. Mm. But the idea that because you did that, you should then reap billions and billions of dollars in rewards for right. that innovation, I just don't think is necessarily reasonable because it comes at a cost, right? All that money and all that wealth right. could be used to improve the Proof. lives for oh, society. the rest of society and people who live in poverty. True. Yes. What do you think about Oprah and Dwayne Johnson asking for money for Hawaii? Bro, it was so weird. Have you, do you know about that? About what? They were asking for what? So, do you know there were fires in Hawaii? Yeah. Right? And Oprah and Dwayne Johnson were making videos on their Instagram mm. asking people for fundraising to help oh people in Hawaii. Right. Right. And... Oprah has properties in Hawaii mm-hmm. where there were fires. Right. She sends security there mm-hmm. so that people who are deceased by fire or, you know, can't go to her property. <laughs> <laughs> and when I, when I heard that, I was like, 
bro, like, are you retarded? <laughs> you're a billionaire. And that's where I would agree on that section. You're a billionaire. Like people, people don't understand the difference between a million and a billion. Then one million is 12 minutes. One billion is 32 years. Yeah. That's how big of a difference. If she has that much money, why are you asking people for money? And do you know how much uh, well, it's money? Well, the same thing they, when and, politicians ask for, for uh, how much money know, do you money? think Oprah and uh, Dwayne Johnson collected from ma- making their Instagram video? I think it wasn't even like 500 bucks. No one donated. <laughs> of course like, not. Fuck off, you two. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, this is it. And, Pete, you know, there was there was talk a few years ago that the Democrats should choose Oprah or Dwayne Rock Johnson as their nominee for the president. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Because we, we have this delusion that these super rich people are particularly smart. Mm-hmm. And someone like Elon Musk, I was just talking to my friend about Elon Musk this morning. I mean, Elon Musk has clearly got a brain that has a level of genius when it comes to certain engineering problems. Right. But he's also a psycho. He's a psycho who doesn't understand other human beings. And by the nature of him, him having so much wealth and power, he's completely divorced from ordinary people. True. And he b- buys into his own bullshit. He believes his own sort of messiah mission to save humanity, even when that's just clearly not true. And what he's proposing, what he talks about doing, is going to make the world worse. What, um, if you were Elon Musk, what would you do di- differently? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd verify my account, Tom Ballard, because even First though I don't want to pay for it, I think I've got some really important That's thoughts start. that people should share <laughs> that would actually help everything. Yeah. God, what would I do now? I mean... I mean, he could he could help to sell, solve world hunger. He could redirect his money and resources into existing infrastructures and projects to make people's lives substantially better. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants to get us to Mars because he wants Elon Musk to be the guy that got humanity to Mars. But I feel like people pick problems, and I think he is picking on problems that he wants to focus on and what he's good at. He can do that. Don't get me wrong. Of course, he can fucking do that. Well, the stuff he can do with his own skills, but it's also just stuff he can do with his extraordinary amounts of money. Absolutely. Mm. So, if you had five million dollars, oh, five billion dollars, how would you structure society differently? Well, I, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not pushing this question to you. I'm just saying that. What areas would you target for so, so that I under, have understanding of what you're trying to fix first? Ooh, yeah, right. Five bill. Five bill. If I had shitloads of money. And I think this is a good thing to, for people to think about. If it's a thought exercise. Yeah, you? yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, just as a left-wing person, I would like to think that I would give a lot of that money to, like, the union movement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if unions have massive funds that they can draw on that allows them to go on strike and survive, that mm-hmm. would make them far more powerful, I think. Making workers and ordinary people and unions much stronger and having some financial heft behind them would be Absolutely, a very good thing. Because yeah. they're, the, they're the pillars of society. You yeah. Know? Yes, builders, and, teachers, uh, policemen, right. nurses. Yes, and the bosses can outlast most strikes because sure. people need to eat and pay Absolutely, rent, and so yeah. they can't really go without right. working. So you have these things called strike funds, which people can draw on during a period of strike. And if those were substantial, then that might make a kind of difference in the class right. war. And what else would I do? I guess I'd maybe try and buy some fossil fuel. Uh, like, like some fossil fuel um, power plants or projects to shut them down, I suppose. Shut them down. But then don't you think that it would cause a scarcity, hence destroying more people? So let's say if you buy a fossil fuel plant and the petrol supplies goes down, hence the petrol prices go up, hence everything is affected by, you know, flap of a butterfly theory. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that would happen? Because but- if you shut them down, then the, then the scarcity goes down, the supply goes down and everything goes up. 
Yep, or you could also reinvest and invest the other parts of the billion dollars into renewable energy as well. That's true. See, yeah. that, that, that was much better. Oh, that's true. Yeah, okay. That's but we really do need to stop those fossil fuels. <laughs> okay. Like, that's a really important part of it. We can't just we can't just build, like, wind farms and stuff. Yeah. Like, we actually need to not yeah. go ahead with these massive gas projects because they will cook the planet and we will all die. Absolutely, man. Um, I because it's I think it's a it's a funny oh what a funny podcast <laughs> I love it well I kind of love this it's probably the most political we've ever got <laughs> and we're even when we had people. Charles Firth on this was, this was more political and we're not political people no to our core I stay away from uh, politics as much as I can but again as I said it's a thought exercise Dan what would you do with five bill hmm. and I'll tell you what I would do with five bill oh yeah I'm very selfish I'd probably just travel for the, the rest of my life <laughs> narcissist yeah yeah do, you would travel did you say I'd travel yeah but here's the thing you'll travel you'll drink after a year you'd be like you would have been to so many places that would be like where the fuck should I go now yeah after a year it'll be like okay that's not even that's they didn't even make a dent in your five billion mm. So now what would you do? Solve world hunger. There we go. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah, there you go. Solve world hunger. Yeah, yeah that's, that's good. But I don't think there's a... I don't think there's a... You need it. You need to reinvest and make more. Yeah, I don't think there's an answer to solve world hunger, though. I think right. it's a very complex um, issue. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't know how anyone fixes it. Well, you can feed a shitload of people. Yes. Uh, with that amount of money. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, but I don't know how you keep people from um, homelessness. You, you, give, you give them homes? Yes. Sorted. It's yeah. <laughs> Do you what? What are your thoughts on? And we'll we'll talk about fun part as well in a sec. <laughs> we'll talk. We'll shit talk in a sec. But what are your thoughts about on universal income? Mm. I'm a little bit uh, skeptical. I've read. I've read heaps around it. I must say, there is a left wing critique of universal basic income, which you know the basic idea that. Um, the government pays mm-hmm. people a certain amount of money. Everyone universally receives the same amount of money um, every month, <clears throat> certain amount of money. And there are different versions of this idea. Often it's put forward by even by someone like so in the libertarian space as a way to sort of remove other welfare spending. Right. So there are some <clears throat> sort of more conservative or neoliberal versions of that idea which seem not that great. It's hard to see it ever happening i think the phrase i've heard is kind of convincing is that a a generous and a sufficient universal basic income would be unaffordable and an unaffordable and an, and an affordable ubi would be insufficient if mm. that makes sense so it's hard to imagine that world in which you could um get the political will to make it happen that you could have you could fund it through ordinary tax and spending uh, and that it wouldn't just result in a massive amount of inflation or, you know, landlords and everybody would just increase their prices across the board. Something like universal basic services, which is Aaron, what Aaron Bastani um, writes about. He wrote a book called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. He's sort of saying, yes, services that people use, so healthcare, education, transport and housing, you know, material things that, that um, are available to everyone. I think that's sort of a path to a better society than direct cash. Mm. Oh, that's true. Direct cash is very risky. It can mm. do, but not, that's not to say that people also don't need just like direct cash. I mean, mm. yes, also Rutger Bregnant, Brennan or whatever his name is, he sort of says, yeah, like being poor is just a fact that people don't have enough cash and you give people more cash, they, they can sort out their own lives. Mm. And that's why, you know, our job seeker payments in this country are below the poverty line and people are sleeping in their cars and they're skipping meals and they can't feed their kids and it's pretty messed up and cruel, particularly when we've got a Labor government who's now pressing ahead with these tax cuts for rich people and still won't raise those those payments above the poverty line. Bro, yeah, that, that's <laughs> kept... Uh, what, do you think? what do you think? Do you think there's hope 
for Australians? Because <laughs> Fuck. we had a we had this uh, we had this um, philosopher on just yesterday, yesterday actually, yeah. and uh, I think he asked yeah. us like, "Is there hope for Australia?" No, 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 no. no what let was me, the question? Let me, let me rephrase. Yes. Yeah. So what we <clears throat> to give you a context, we were talking about what makes Australia special, mm. right? Like what makes America special, what makes India special, what makes China special, what makes Australia special. And he asked me this question and I thought um, the feeling of mateship uh, makes Australia special. It's, it's, it's that value everyone has. People are nice to each other. And that's what I said to him. Mm. Um, and it's like, okay, cool. And he said that all of Australia should have a common goal. Every, like the whole whole country should have one common goal. Like, where are we taking this country? Mm. If if people are polar opposite to to what they think, then we're just it's a civil war. We're just fighting each other. Mm. Um, so that's when he yeah. asked, like, do we have hope for Australia? And that was or my answer. I said we will. I, I thought that we were sort of lost as a country. Mm. There was, I think, we were, you know, rudderless. In other words, yes. Yeah. What's what's the aim? Where are we taking yeah. this country? So I think that, that and I don't think we have a name, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, thoughts. on it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting the idea of making what makes Australia special, and I suppose I don't I don't think about the world in the in those terms, or I don't look at humanity in those kind of ways. And this is a big change in my, the way that I view uh, politics mm. and, and humans and people over the past couple of years as I've come to more socialist politics, okay? Right. Broadly speaking, a socialist would say that people and societies are created by the material conditions that exist around them, right? So it's not So it's not like there's something inherent in the people of India and Canada and Australia that we're all human beings with basic same material needs, but the way we organise ourselves and the way that our countries run uh, and the way that we relate to each other are all products of the way that our material realities is organised and the way things exist. So people are very nice to each other in Australia broadly because we're quite materially secure. And so I think overwhelmingly generally people are good and if people are in a materially secure position, Mm -hmm. they can be decent to each other, right? And they they want good things for themselves and their families and generally are peaceful people. That's That's my broad sort of reading on humanity. The, the reason why we see cruelty and uh, and exploitation is because of the political economic system mm-hmm. of capitalism and the way that it arranges society and, and forces us to, us to relate to, to each other. Um, and it's an economic system that produces these massive disparities of wealth. Mm-hmm. When you have a society of billionaires and people living on the street, like that's all generated mm-hmm. by a political economic system where... Um, the means of productions are in the hands of of, of private people. So, um, so yes, we get along with each other, I suppose, but we are divide we are divided by class. We are divided by that ec- political economic system that that just mm. automatically pits workers against bosses. By automatically pits the people against the ruling elite and the ruling class. That's sort of part of the deal. Now, that doesn't mean that life here is a misery, obviously. There's lots of really good things and lots of people can live very decent lives in this country. A huge amount of that has been despite capitalism, right? It's been the trade union movement organising or through the political system to try and win um, rights and a welfare state from people who didn't want to give it to us, right? So that's where I would see any kind of level Mm -hmm. of hope, the idea of ordinary broadly defined working people working together to try and get what's theirs mm. because that's what's worked in the past. 
So that is what I think is where hope. When you came out. into this podcast, you weren't expecting to use that. <laughs> no, no, no. He was like, I'm using my brain too much. I was here for a relaxed conversation. <laughs> I wrote a book about it all, right? I, yeah. This book I wrote last year called I Millennial, which was me trying to sum up why I think millennials are particularly fucked when it comes to work, housing, privatization, education, wealth inequality, and the climate crisis. Mm. So it was me really trying to put down all this stuff that I'd been furiously reading and researching about ever since really 2016. When Trump got elected, I started like freaking out and trying to think about what what's happened in the world. Who was this Bernie Sanders guy? What do people mean by neoliberalism and, and capitalism? How does it all work? I was really trying to get my head around that. And in that book, I was trying to articulate, you know, my reading on recent Australian history and, and how it came to be that way. Because it's true, because it's just different. For, for us as Australian millennials and our generation, the baby boomers, we just lived in very different versions of Australia. And obviously things change all the time, but specific political and economic choices that were made in the 80s and 90s changed things like housing like and changed the workforce in a really massive way. This is what's called the neoliberal revolution. That happened here and things don't have to necessarily be like that. And I think getting your head around that is is kind of important, I suppose. And it feels like in the post-war years, after World War II, right, which is when our parents, the baby boomers, were born into that that era, there was much more of a collective Australian project and there, mm. it was much more mm. of a society that said that, you know, the market wasn't the most important thing. Yeah. Tax, tax, highest, highest marginal tax rate, about 90%. Mm. A wonderful time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and inequality was falling, right? The yeah. gap between the rich and the poor was actually trending down between yeah. 1945 and the early 70s. Yeah. And then everything goes to shit then and we start saying, no, markets, we need to introduce markets everywhere, we need to deregulate everything. And what do you know? Inequality exploded and now we're living in a country with the most one of the most cooked housing markets in the world and workers have no power and heaps of stuff's been privatised. And, yeah, you've got Gina Reinhardt and you've got people living on the street. So as a comedian, you're... <laughs> 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 I'm cheering now. <laughs> funny, funny stuff. <laughs> That's good, man. Um, I'm just saying that you're you're observing this from a perspective of comedian. That's good. What I'm saying is that you're here now. How does one fix it? Let's say if you were to have <laughs> kids or if there were kids growing up, how do they deal with the society now? Yes, well, this is when... Because I believe in I not complaining and not, uh, pardon my French, not bitching about it. And it's like, okay, if that's the situation, yes. whatever it is, I'm a man, I'm going to go fix out there and, you know, make make the best out of myself and my family and my friends. Yes, yes. And look, when it comes to what is to be done or how to fix any of this, this is when I start running out of as yeah. really... Um, my job, the, the value that I have in any way is to try and disseminate information to try and understand mm -hmm. information present it in a vaguely entertaining interesting way and that's mainly an analysis of what already has happened and gives you an analysis of where things are now mm. um i suppose and, and i found a level of power or a little level of motivation coming to a better understanding of, of these kind of things because it, right. it clarifies things for you it allows you to see what is and is it important it allows you to see what's really going on when we talk about a lot of the issues in the news. I mean, it's very easy. And I, I certainly thought this for years. It's just like the world's crazy and everything's in chaos and they'll just never figure it out. And, oh, what do you know? It's, it's all. It's always been thus. Cynical approach. A, a cynical, yes, and a powerless approach and a kind of... Nihilistic approach. Yes. Right? Mm. Yes, and, a, and a, it's sort of a mystical reasoning for why society is the way it is. 
Yeah. Whereas if you see it through the analysis of class, you get to understand in a much better way why things are the way they are and you start to ask better questions like does it need to be like this? Like what says it, what what rule is there that, you know, we have to have live in a society where there are rich people and poor people? If we really believe in equality and justice and fairness, we would want a society in which there were no poor people, in which we actually could eliminate poverty. And then you say, well, that sounds like crazy. Then you go, well, no, it is actually possible. Mm. There, it, it, we have enough wealth to make sure that nobody goes hungry and nobody is homeless. Like that is absolutely something that we could do that would require organising society in a different way. Mm. And it's those kind of questions, those kind of realisations, I think, that lead people to an anti-capitalist politics, a socialist politics, potentially a communist politics as well. And yes, it's all, you know, it's easy to sort of think of it all as quite um, uh, utopian, I suppose, and quite far out of reach. But if you read enough stuff and think about it enough and get continue to get outraged at the state of things in, in a society, you sort of, you're left with very little option, I think, any other option really other than to, to sort of say what you really believe and call out the bullshit for what it is. Yeah. But don't you think that's futile just calling the bullshit and not fixing it? Well, you should, yes. So of course the question is, yes, you come to this analysis. Now, what do you do? And of course, lots of people make different ideas. You know, if you're on the left, you may say, well, I want to join the Labour Party. There might be lots of problems with the Labour Party, but they're in, they have a chance to be in government and can make an actual difference. So I want to do that. Me, I had I joined the Greens. The Greens were the, the closest thing to expressing my politics that actually had an avenue to try and seriously change things and hopefully if I could play a role in building that party as an alternative so that we didn't have to put up with the neoliberal mediocre bullshit of the Labour Party. Right. Other people say that the Greens are <laughs> too much of a sellout. They go, I'm joining the Victorian Socialists or or all political parties is bullshit and the parliament is bourgeois and we should tear it down. I'm going to be an anarchist who lives in the woods yeah. or whatever. See, I, I yeah. agree with that because you said, okay, you joined the Greens party. That To me, that means like, okay, this man wants to make a change and mm. whatever beliefs you have, good, bad, that's not up to me to decide. But you said... It's up to me to decide. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. To your yeah. Submit your beliefs and yeah. I'll let you know if they're any yeah. really good. And you said, no, I'm going to join a political party and try to make a change. Mm. I agree with that ideology because... Mm. You're trying. You're mm. not sitting there and complaining. So could you explain to me what the Green Party is about? I'm way away from politics, man. Just so you know, I have absolutely... <laughs> Harman's no only been in this country, what, six, six, six years? Seven years. Sure, yeah. sure, so yes. I'm like, I'm a baby here. I'm six years and old. And he got fined for not voting once as well. What? Uh, well, that was my first Because he didn't realise that, yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. He so. didn't realise he had to vote, so he got fined for not voting the first... First Are you time. a citizen? First. Uh, just recently. Oh, congrats. Yeah. Oh, nuts. So I'm, I'm in the club. As Charles first said, welcome to Australia. Here's your fine. Yes. (laughs) It's an honour. Now vote. Vote for these horrible parties. I'd be happy. Well, the Greens are the the third biggest uh, party or political force in Australia. You've got the Coalition, which is the Liberals and the Nationals. They're the right-wing people. You've got the Labour Party who are in power now, who uh, grew out of the trade union movement and are, in theory, the party of the worker. We could have a lot of debates around how that's going for them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, I mean, you know, on a lot of positions basically centre-right but also broadly centre, they would like to paint themselves as centre-left. Right. But we've got a lot of problems with that. And the Greens have been around for about 30 years. Um, they grew out of lots of different movements and then eventually confederated into a federal party in the early 1990s. But the the main precursors to them were environmental movements, particularly in Tasmania. Hmm. 
So they're called the Greens, and around the same time, there were lots of green parties and green movements happening across the world, environmental, primarily focused on on uh, politics that would um, conserve important parts of the environment. Then also, it was also um, a meeting of a lot of uh, people who were from socialist politics who thought that the Labor Party had betrayed the working class, and so they also had that worker um, politics beating as well. Now, uh, there are lots of things to say about the Greens. I mean, overwhelmingly, they are supported by pretty comfortable tertiary-educated uh, voters, and you would say that there's lots of parts of the Greens' history and perhaps their present that indicate that they're not so great on class politics. Mm. But they are also, uh, on lots of issues, I think, absolutely on the right side of history, you know, whereas the Labor kind of sold out when it came to refugees and the way mm. that we treat refugees in this country, the Greens have always held the line. They fighted for marriage equality way before the Labor Party could eventually sort their shit out and come on board that cause. And more recently, particularly with Adam Bant, the new leader, it's been much more about a left-wing populist and economic story, looking at, yes, the climate crisis is like this massive existential threat, but also the inequality crisis mm. and trying to do something about that. And particularly with the Queensland Greens, who have just recently won three seats in the last election, um, it's been much more about grassroots, anti-capitalist politics, tax rich people, fund public services for ordinary people, stop stop pumping up fossil fuels into the atmosphere because that's going to kill us all, like actually take that seriously. Mm. Um, and I guess, yeah, the other thing I'd recommend about them is that they are seriously a grassroots party so the members actually have serious power in determining how the party is run as opposed mm. to the Labor Party and they don't take corporate donations whatsoever. Right. So these are good things. Now, they're still, you know, still very much a small party. I think it's about you know, 15 or 16,000 members across the country. We still only get, get about 12% of the national vote. Um, we only have four seats in the lower parliament and 11 senators in the upper house. But every now and again, we've been put into a minority position and we've been able to do good stuff with that power um, mm-hmm. and use use our parliamentary power to actually negotiate some better outcomes. So, yeah. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a parody of a Tom Mellon podcast. And I'm sorry to anyone who tuned into this for shits and giggles. But I, I do. It's funny, right, because people say, oh, well, you know, how do you think your comedy is going to affect any of this? And it's it's more like I'm a human being. I yeah. do comedy. I love doing comedy. I love being creative. I love attention for mm. all my faults or whatever. And I, and I will just always keep doing that. I just, if I probably really super cared and was really committed mm. to these causes, I would probably quit comedy and become... Something Full else. Time. Yeah, Corinne Grant, comedian, quit and became a lawyer and she's now That's doing right, amazing yeah. work helping out workers who get fucked over by their bosses, right, and like really admirable and, mm. and it's great. I have no plans to do that anytime soon. I'm well, just you do comedy, comedy lectures. I do comedy lectures, <laughs> yes, which, uh, which are box office poison. Um, but yes, and so then, but then also I'm a human being and who cares about this stuff and so I do other things. I try and organise and do charity gigs and get involved with Greens and do this Greens podcast that I take seriously yeah. And at least, I don't know, I'd like to think that uh, I'm able to balance all those things in, in, in a meaningful way. I mean, some people have theories of comedy mm. where it's like if you're a comedian, you should never be taken seriously. Mm. You should never take yourself seriously in public at all. Well, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if I weren't a fan of your comedy, I wouldn't have probably come on board to some of these same ideas right. that, you, that you have anyway so that you are doing something. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Comedy certainly exposed me to a whole bunch of new ideas mm. and different ways of looking things and, and and encouraged me to find out about other stuff in history and stuff. And I wouldn't be the person I am today without the comedy I've consumed. Um, but I also but I also am not proposing that my comedy is 
massively changing the world, I suppose. Like um, some people like to come up to you, particularly if they have the same politics and they like your comedy, they'll come up afterwards like it's so important mm. what you're doing. Yeah. And that's a very nice thing to say, but I don't think it's totally true, you know. Um, <laughs> at least there's no way you can live seriously believing that, I suppose. <laughs> As a comedian, you'd go insane. Yeah. What <laughs> If you start talking about some of these topics on something like the uh, little dum-dum club, what <laughs> What do you think you'd achieve there? <laughs> Nothing. Carl doesn't know what the Senate is, okay? No. And, and that's I think what I love uh, more and more as I get older, I'm appreciating comedy more of like the world is so fucked and life is really hard and even the dumbest, stupidest, uh, most puerile, problematic comedy of like the little dum-dum club is really valuable because it's a release. It's just... It's able, you know, being dumb and stupid. And um, I was having brunch with my niece this morning and she was saying poo-poo butt-butt. And I'm like, that's great stuff. That's really good. That's gold. Content. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, <clears throat> so we didn't get to what you would do with $5 billion. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, job. go on. Um, oh, it's such a great premise. Fuck, I want to talk now. Um, well, I was trying to figure out a way to pivot away from politics, but you go on with, with your $5 billion plan. $5 billion. I can just keep one for myself. Just the one. Just the one. <laughs> yeah. More than enough, man. If fact. I have 50 billion in the bank, that's more than enough I need. But I, if I keep one to myself, that's, that's more than <laughs> enough. So four bill, I think um, the issues I feel like that I can trigger would be um, what issues does Australia suffer at the moment? Um, renewable energy, mm -hmm. I can put my resources into that because I think we can bring in more talent from other countries to Australia to counter that um, problem. Mm -hmm. And not only I would trigger Australia, I think I would go outside Australia, I'll take it more back to India as well, even America, try to solve a bit of hunger problem. Um, more often than not, I would try to somehow come up with something that eradicates student debts mm -hmm. because I That's believe good. education yeah. should be free. It, it That to me pisses me off that kids who walk out to be a doctor yeah. in mm. America mm. have 100,000, 200,000 student loans. Mm. That doesn't make sense to me. It yes. never made sense to me because mm -hmm. don't we need doctors? Yeah. So think if I can, even if I can pick one problem mm. in my life yeah. and fix that, I'll be happy. I don't care about the, if the world's on fire. Don't care. One problem, one individual, I'll be happy. I think I should actually know how much student debt is. I think every year Hex debt racks up about five, four or five billion, actually, I think, every wow. year. There's an existing hex debt total that's much mm, bigger than that. Of course. So you wouldn't be able to wipe that in one. But, yeah, I mean, that's a great example, right? Like for 15 years, university education was free in this country. Wow. Then the Labor government says, nope, you got to start paying for this. But don't worry, let's just start small. Mm. Just a little fee <laughs> just to go, just a little fee and it will all be flat and yeah. just like it's like 250 bucks right. initially ch charge and then, you know, something smaller than that. And then what do you know? You know, uh, cut to uh, 30 years later and the average debt is now about 24 grand or something like that. And then there are heaps of people with, yeah, six-figure degrees. And it's a really insidious 
uh, version of this of this neoliberal logic, this you're an individual, right? You should individually bear the cost of getting an education, even though you need to get an education to both serve society and also to help business make money and stuff. And even though we generally agree that an educated society is a good thing, no, right. the cost has to come back onto you. Um, it's, yeah, it's brutal. It's, and again, another good example, along with that, the corporatization of universities oh, where they've just bad. been transformed into business, business, right? Yeah. Yes. Because I did study photography from my MIT. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be honest, man. Look, it was good because it provides you structure and mm-hmm. connections. Yeah. Um, although I had a bit of a bad luck because COVID came between my first and second semester. So right. it was weird, but not going to talk about that. <laughs> I'm just saying that um, it could have learned so much more from those universities. I didn't feel the connection I thought I would. Mm. And there was a, an article by Vice AU recently that students aren't feeling that connection or they're not uh, feeling that they're being delivered what they were promised initially mm-hmm. and they're, you know, dropping out uh, in between their degrees. So that to me is just like, because if we're not building out foundation, if we're not educating our human beings, our young human beings, then is society going to prosper? Yeah. I don't think so. So that problem I would, would so forbill. Yeah, great. And I'll enjoy the fuck out of that one because <laughs> don't get me wrong well, life, you just donate that to a university you only get one life yeah exactly yeah. we only get one life so i'm just gonna enjoy the one bill by myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but even then say okay I mean, one billion i would argue is still way too much money but no, it is. you could say all right what if we have a hundred percent tax rate on all income over a billion or on wealth over a billion dollars and if anyone to seriously say but that won't leave me with enough money. I think you have to be able to say you're you're insane. You're bananas. Yes, but there, <laughs> he's not convinced. <laughs> but there are, there are a lot of ways I can dodge that. Lots of ways. Um, if I I don't have to earn. Let's say if I start a company, right? I don't have to make billions. Mm. What I can do is put an IPO, and then they. The company can pay me mm. to be the CEO of that company. So mm. I could be earning $100,000, although I would be $6 billion in uh, assets. Right. Because, you know, yes, well, the, the, we'd be talking about a wealth tax, really. Yes. Right. So wealth tax. Would so, be, again, um, lots of ways to dodge it, man. Okay, loopholes and loopholes. But then again, I, I still understand what you're saying as well. Yeah, I always, you know, if you talk about taxing people, go, well, the rich people just dodge it. It was like, first of all, they're dodging the taxes now. Now, oh, for sure. Obviously, proposing a tax, you are implying that, yes, the tax would be actually levied. So, yes, let's take that as read <laughs> that when we say we should introduce this tax, we do actually think you should collect that tax. And, you know, there's just so much bullshit uh, um, around, you know, the idea that if we tax rich people more, then they'll all flee Australia. Yeah. Now, Australia is some of the highest tax tax taxes in terms of like corporation taxes, mm. for example, and we still have huge amounts of investment coming into this country. It was the number one destination for millionaires for a long period of time. Um, we have one of the lowest tax to GDP ratios in the in the um, um, OECD. Um, and yet, when you look at the past, particularly in the post-war period, our tax rates these days are minuscule. And of course, rich people just constantly talk about how they're being taxed too much, and they have the wealth and power to amplify that message through the corporate media and in every single chance they get. Mm-hmm. And we're just conditioned to think, oh, these are business smart rich people. They must know what they're talking about. So if they say they're getting taxed too much, then that must be true. Now, there is an argument that we tax work too much, like we tax labour more than we tax wealth, right? And if you could replace them, so the, the assets that people just sit on and great money, they don't produce anything, 
they should be taxed at a higher rate yeah. than people going to work every fucking day. Like you could actually make that argument, but again, we don't we don't actually have that system. What happens if rich people get taxed? How much would the tax be? I'm just saying. How much would you want it to be? Again, I want to see what happens. I would. It, uh, my personal feelings would come into it. So mm-hmm. I'd like meet the rich person. If they were cunt to me, then I'd say you should be rich, taxed at 100. percent The nicer so ones can be taxed be less. Individualistic. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> okay. No, I think I think. Well, yeah. What's the, the top marginal tax rate is 47 and a half percent at wow. 180 grand plus. Mm. Um, now, of course. Heaps of people have all these tax crazy loopholes that can reduce their tax bill, which means they don't pay any of that. I think there were 90 millionaires in one year that didn't pay any tax. They managed to reduce their taxable income to below $18,000, wow. okay, even though Job. they were millionaires. So that seems right. like a really good system that we've got there. I mean, there's a thing called the Buffett rule, which is just like a minimum amount of tax that mm. sort of no matter how many deductions you have, you're paying at least, say, 23% of, mm. your, of your income in right. taxes. Um, that's a Buffett rule that our wonderful Prime Minister Anthony Albanese used to support, but now he doesn't because he's the Prime Minister and you can't actually do anything as Prime Minister. But, I mean, these taxes that are coming through, these stage three tax cuts, I don't know if you heard about this, but this is a tax plan uh, cooked up by the Conservatives Mm -hmm. that the Labor Party seemed to convince themselves they had to support in order to win that last election. They they won the last election and they are now, it seems, we don't seem to hear any news differently, they they were going to move forward with these tax cuts Mm -hmm. that are in in the realm of uh, $180 billion going to the richest people in this country once the tax cuts are introduced, in in tax cuts, Mm -hmm. okay? So that's that's just more than almost $200 billion that could go to, you know, funding our services, yes, and building Mm -hmm. out this the welfare state, making people's lives better, right. that is just going to go back into the pockets mm. of some of the richest people. It means right. that the, all our politicians who are on at least 200 grand a year will be getting a $9,000 a year tax cut. Mm. Okay. And what are they well, going to do with that? They're not going to, they're not going to reinvest that or anything. They just sit on it. They just put it in a bank account. That's what rich people do. If you mm. give tax cuts to poor working class people, they spend more of their income. So that money would actually go and stimulate the economy. That's not going to happen. The rich motherfuckers. Well, shouldn't the poor people be investing? Have you invested? I'm just just curious. Do you invest? Uh, I don't invest anything specifically. My superannuate. We have the superannuation system oh, true, here, yeah, which means course. that against my will, um, I have to invest that <laughs> in the fucking stock market. Yeah. Again, another cook system that is all laid out in my book as to why that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> what what a good pitch! Did you take book. out uh, 10k? During the during the pandemic, no, 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 I, I, I didn't never, I never met any kind of financial hardship levels, and in fact, at one point during the second lockdown in Melbourne, I was earning more money through government handouts than I would have like working normally. It's a great system. That's why I like that, Andrew. (laughs) Do you you have business owners around you that you talk to? Um, so, so they knock they're like no what the hell is this guy talking maybe in your family I'm just, just curious my my brother is a small business owner he runs his really? own business and he's a very nice guy and we'd broadly agree on lots of politics I don't think he'd, he'd identify as a socialist that's for sure he would you know and look and more and more I'm like less hung up about small business generally I mean lots of people have small businesses and they just don't you know they are I mean, you get some small business tyrants and I think that workers and small businesses should have all their same rights and should be able to organise, yada, yada, yada. They can certainly be exploited, that's for sure. But they just don't wield anywhere near the kind of power that we see with the big corporates. You know, and that's actually where the, the 
you know, the problems are. These massive companies, many of them formerly publicly owned companies like Qantas and Telstra, that wield extraordinary corporate power and shape the society to their whims, donate money to our political parties, which is also mm. uh, really cooked. And, you know, we can just never do anything to um, rein them in, to make sure they pay their taxes, to make sure they, they treat their workers better and that they don't dominate our society and politics. So they're the, the real villains, I'd say. I would, I would slightly agree with that, like what happened during COVID, like something... Harvey course, Norman. Can we agree Jerry, Jerry Harvey is evil? Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. He's <laughs> a billionaire. He owns, you know, Harvey Norman, those yeah, furniture yeah, stores? Yeah. Yes. He's a... He, um, Talk to me about that. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say about Jerry fucking Harvey? Who's Jerry? He's a dick. Jerry Harvey. He's a massive he, retailer. Yeah. He's always campaigned against the internet, you know, cutting in on his sales. And he received... Against internet? Yes, yes, because he's old school. And he's like, you need to be in the store and look at the couch. Um, mm. He's just an awful man. And he famously, at the start of the pandemic, did this interview with 60 Minutes where he's like, this is awesome. My sales are going through the roof. Heaps of people, mm. air purifier sales are up 20%. I'm making billions of dollars here. And mm. he got huge amounts of um, JobKeeper payments from the government, Go even on. though their profits soared Ooh. more than ever before. So, Damn. yeah. And the media is very bad at reporting on Jerry Harvey because Harvey Norman is a massive advertiser across our corporate media. It's the whole yeah, system, see? man. <laughs> yes. Fuck the system. <laughs> no, I agree with that. That's uh, I don't know about that, though. I've got to look into the Harvey Norman, huh? Okay. The hesitation, I suppose, and the legitimate questions that I've had to consider is people sort of say, well, you know, if you de if you demonize all these, the free market enterprise and if you tax heaps of people, no one will do anything, right? That we won't do anything as a society. People do things because they're incentivized to make money and live and live a decent life, mm -hmm. right? These are the, the motivations within the market to make a whole lot of money. And I just don't think that's really true. If you really think about it, is that how really human beings work? Is it that if, 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 if we had a slightly different organized economic system, people would just sit around all day and not do anything ever. Is that actually what we think human beings yeah, would do? I, I'd agree with that. If people got, uh, with the universal income thingy, I think if people had the incentive, there are, again, not everybody, of course, but there would be some people who would sit and not do anything. Absolutely. I've seen those people, man. Seen those people on Centrelink. Oh, man, it's bad. I would hate to be them. Well, but but you, so but you're right. But you don't think that would be everybody in a society. Oh, absolutely. Like, yes, yeah, yeah, of course. These are not. You know, there are things that we do with being alive that we want to create, and you could still have. You know, I mean, there's a thing called market socialism. You could still have a socialist society in which there are still markets and trade. It's just sort of not everything is handed over, but to market oh, forces to make mm. make things work. But I just think you know, human beings innovate and question and research things all the time, not for profit. I mean, you know, you have you have scientists who are paid a wage. Who aren't? Mm. It's not like they get a profit split of, of their discoveries. They get paid, you know, often in a university or a government context, um, and they're researching for the quest of greater knowledge and to try and solve problems and to make True. things better. And right. if if we look after each other, share wealth to make sure that everyone's material needs are met, like actually the potential of what humanity could be would be would be extraordinary. I think. Yes, and I again, I think human beings are all complex creatures and. Some would start walking into more creative paths, such as, um, you know, solving those problems as yeah. scientists or everything. Mm. I mean, you know, this idea that capitalism unlocks human potential, but think about all the human potential that's wasted by people working shitty jobs 
you know, in lots of like shitty jobs, as in jobs with not great conditions that are really important to make sure that society functions, you know, that's working people. That's that's completely fair enough. But the amount of bullshit jobs that are created, jobs that probably don't need to exist, or the fact that you know you have all this competition in the one market when actually that's that's a lot of um, duplicated effort. It's actually you know capitalism is often celebrated as this highly efficient system when often it's it's one of the least efficient ways of organizing things around. Um, Do you think those bullshit jobs that you talked about would be taken over by AI pretty soon? Well, there's, there's menial jobs that are still important. I'm I'm saying more stuff like um, like advertising is entirely almost entirely a creation of capitalism to try and sell us things that we do not need. Right. Um, so, you know, you could reimagine mm. a refunctioning of all that creative <laughs> effort mm. that's put into advertising mm. to try and sell you different cars that you need, like, like you know, LV to bags. try and make the difference between no. this car and that car. Like mm. it's just a trick to try and terrify you to associate these material goods with greater status and rather than trying to associate it with any kind of practical outcome, whatever, you could imagine all the money and wealth and time and effort and creative energy spent on those mm. kind of things redirected to something more productive. But I think, yes, and I believe that a little bit because that LV person, what's it, I don't know his name, I think, that man is probably one of the richest men. He just, he's selling you bags and that bag <laughs> Oh, the is, French guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he's yeah. A, the designer. He's such a symbol of being wealthy. It's like, that doesn't make sense, man. Yeah. Having an LV bag doesn't make you LV bag doesn't make you wealthy. So it's like, why are people buying this? Yes, the scarcity, the the advertising, yeah, the hush hush about it. Mm. It's like, mm. yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. <laughs> Maybe that's <laughs> what, so. Yeah, I guess. There we go. Do you think we're working too much? I'm not, <laughs> but um, you know, all you normals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big time. I was working on this project at the moment about predictions about humans' mm. ability to look at the future and try and guess what's coming. And John Maynard Keynes was a very famous uh, economist. Um, Keynesianism is, is like a the economic philosophy that um, basically was introduced, particularly in Australia, in the, in the um, post-war period. The general idea that during an economic downturn you stimulate demand as opposed to supply-side economics. Uh, Keynes predicted in the 1920s that, you know, by the end of the century we'd all be working a 15-hour week. And that was a nice idea that is not true. And, in fact, yes, even though, even though you know, again, another great example of capitalism being completely opposed to human welfare, even despite all the technological advancements that we've had, we're still working just as much as ever, basically. And we only have a five-day work week because unions organised to create the weekend, right? And when it was you'd, originally you'd, around the 30s and 40s, you'd be working a six-day week, unions organised say, no, we need Saturday and Sunday off. And, of course, when that's introduced, then uh, all the bosses say, this is outrageous, it's going to crash the economy, this is never work, people are lazy. And, of course, now we take the weekend for granted. And so now there's a new conversation about, well, what about a four-day work week? Yeah. And in all the trials that are run, overwhelmingly, it either has a negligible effect on productivity or productivity goes up because people are happier and are actually more productive on those four days. True. Okay. I think the flexibility that's come with working arrangements with the pandemic seems to have changed people's lives broadly for the better, maybe. You know, it's come at a terrible cost. I don't want to say, say that the <laughs> pandemic was cool because people have can work from home now, but at least you know, all those ideas around how much time we spend in the office, whether we need to go to the office, whether we organise our life around work, 
uh, whether we should fight for more. Um, you know, those questions that have been brought up, I think, are really interesting. So that's good. Think- but I do feel awkward because I have such a bullshit job myself. <laughs> I put myself in the bullshit job category and my relationship to work is so ridiculous and I get to do what I love and I really get a lot of time off and I get I can get paid a shitty amount of money for a lot of work and I can get a shitload of money paid for not much work at all. Like the showbiz is just ridiculous. So I do often sometimes try to remind myself that I am not and I haven't had a lot of experience working shitty jobs and I'm very, very lucky in that respect. So, yeah. No. You think human beings get paid on the proportion of the problems that they solve? (laughs) (laughs) No. No. no, I I think they do. I think the bigger problem you solve, the more money you make. Do you agree with that? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, um, paid by who? By bosses or by the market? By By the the market. market. Because I don't think you decide your value how much you get paid. The market does, right? The market does. The audience of the market. like Yes, that's not a perfect system though. I mean, you know, inheritance, for example. So in this in this podcast this morning, we're talking about Anthony Pratt, our third biggest mm-hmm. billionaire. So his father was the head of Vizzy Industries and that he inherited Vizzy Industries. So right. he's a billionaire by the virtue of the family that he was born into, Gina Reinhardt's inherited her wealth right. as well. So they, now they took over their business. They did things which I guess increased the value of the company. Hmm. Very easy to do once you already have a few once billion dollars. Once you're already dollars. up there. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty easy to. Yeah. No, but I mean like think of all the people who work their guts out hmm. to do really important good jobs that we pay like yeah. shit, you know? Hmm. But I feel like the the harder the problem that you fix, the more money you should get paid. So let's say someone who's putting in electricity lines to connect cities should get paid more than someone, let's say, doing a working at a warehouse, let's say. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you know. That's a much harder job, man. Well, it's, it's, it's a skill, it's a highly skilled job, a specialist skill job True. that takes training and Your requirement, trade. certainly, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think again in the warehouse, in the warehouse, in the <laughs> pandemic, we started asking some big questions. I mean, people in the union movement would say that there's no such thing as low skilled work, and actually, low skilled work is a phrase created by the ruling class <clears throat> to try and devalue the labour of people. Mm. I I could not work in a McDonald's kitchen, yeah. right? Like I, I would be terrible at that job. And I and and people think, okay, it's low skilled in that you can get a 16 year old in, you can teach them how to do it, yeah. but it's fucking brutal. Well, it seems like it's really hard. On that retail work as well yeah. would be considered low paid. But during the pandemic, when everything was closed, well, we relied on Woolworths, yes. Coles to be open. And who yes. was there? Yes. Retail work. Right. <laughs> on the front lines. Yeah. Yeah, they mean it's like easy to replace you, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and yes, and, 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 and that's the idea. And look, I think people, and that the people who are getting paid shitty amounts of money should get paid way more and ideally you would get paid as a reflection of how successful the business is. So in a multi-billion dollar industry like McDonald's that can afford to pay their employees way more money, they will pay you as little as they possibly can get away with. This is why unions are so important, right? Because the only thing stopping a McDonald's worker getting paid more money really is their level of power, their ability to organise um, and demand more from their employers. Um in regards to solving problems too, I mean, you know, like people, these people who solve problems also create massive problems as well and are still paid shitloads of money. 
um, by the nature of the corporate power that they sort of wield. Mm. I mean, you know, someone who is promoted up the ranks of a big corporation might have solved the problem of mm. paying too much to their workers or having too many employees. And so mm. they might have just, you know, shed a whole bunch of people or casualized the workforce or brought in labor hire um, uh, workers too. So they might have right. solved the problem from the company's point of view, which is how do we spend less on wages? Mm. Uh, but they've created more problems in society and they've made their employees' lives worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think to essentially solve a problem, you create another problem. I don't think you actually solve a problem. Bro, how did we end up here? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to go this deep into um, politics <laughs> and the economy mm, and capitalists. Really. So, yeah, <laughs> it's so, fun. Yeah. It's fun because we've never talked about. No, it. no, we haven't this gone this deep into it before. This yeah. challenges me to think that what am I thinking? This yeah. is a great thought exercise. So thank you so much. Well, for well, you're very welcome. And it, you know, and I'm not an expert as well. And mm. and and and, mm. and I'm just reading Jacobin and uh, and regurgitating what I'm reading. But I. Yeah, particularly, what is it, 2023? Yeah, so for the past seven years particularly, I've been trying to ask a lot of these questions, trying to learn as much as I can, talk to other people about it. And I there is this kind of, um, I don't want to call it a rabbit hole because that sounds like it is a conspiracy theory to lose your mind, but there are these, there's this whole untold history and all, and you realise all these preconceived ideas we have about the way our society should does work and should work mm-hmm. and your basic moral centre. If you have a basic moral call centre of like fairness and you think that, all human beings have value and a basic level of human rights and universality, I think that you are compelled to look at the society that we have, mm-hmm. recognise all the good stuff about it, sure, but also, you know, you should be filled with a level of rage at the injustice of it <laughs> and how and, and, the, and the frustration is how much better things could be and the, things, and the reason why things aren't so much better, why we don't solve these massive problems is because the people who benefit from the status quo Right. are very much invested in things staying as they are and do not mm, want things to change. Absolutely. Or they want things to get, uh, you know, even better for them. Mm. And that, comrades, <laughs> is why I'm running for president of Australia. Is that how it works? Do we have a president? Yeah, I think so. Do you think we should get rid of the uh, monarchy? Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> why? Because it's ridiculous, okay? Yeah. This is a... This, I mean, like, this is all measured by, tempered by the idea that I don't think it's the biggest deal. It's not the biggest mm-hmm. problem facing Australia or humanity at the moment. No. But this is an anti-democratic uh, institution that's racist, that's based on colonialism and imperialism, that's based on inherited, uh, inherited divine right to rule, which goes against every democratic principle we have, you know. The idea that the uh, head of state and the, the king is... Um, Politically neutral is a lie. Like there are lots of examples of the royal family interfering in the um, uh, in the um, political process in the UK and here in Australia, most notably with the dismissal, mm-hmm. and uh, and also just by the fact that they they own shitloads of money. They got thirty eight billion dollars worth of assets or something. So that automatically makes you a political actor. Okay, yeah. and they just own huge amounts of land in in the UK. And I also think it just has a psychological effect. It is it is reinforcing a class society on us that there are these people at the top and everybody else underneath it, and they deserve everything that they have. Um, and 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 I'm just you know I'm a Democrat. I just think it's it's uh, it's wrong. If we're going to have a head of state and um, someone who to take on that symbolic role, that person should be democratically elected by the people. Do you think you'll um, sing a different tune if you get invited to be knighted? Yeah, that's going to happen. If anyone saw my latest show, which I did about 30 minutes on how much I hate the Queen and was glad that she was dead, I don't think I'm going to get the call. 
And I have a little less respect for anyone who accepts it, to be honest. I mean, British people, it's probably different, particularly with a certain generation. It probably has some massive, like Paul McCartney's a a sir or whatever. Did Mick Jagger too? Did he accept it? I don't know. I have a lot of respect for people who reject the honours. I think that's like, that's a good thing to do. Um, And yeah, all that kind of title and pomp and circumstance is ridiculous. And it's ridiculous in Australia too. The Australia Day ceremony is sponsored by Chevron in this country, which is just the most perfect encapsulation of how a cooked our political system <laughs> yeah. is. So I don't have much respect for that. What yeah. powers do you get when you get knighted? What, what, sorry? What, what powers do you get? What's nothing. the benefit? Yes, you get, you just get a or, sir or, you know. It's just the title. Dame in front of your name. Yeah. Really? That's it? Yeah. Mm. I had a bit about how... If we're going to have knights, they should be fucking knights. Like, I shouldn't be able to beat you in a fight. <laughs> and I'm sorry, Sir Elton John, but I reckon I could fucking bash you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's just silly. It's just it's just silly. And it, and it's I really think it has a very strong, yeah, psychological impact on 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 people. Like, we're all we're citizens. We're not subjects. And yeah. the fact that we are expected to show this level of respect and deference to these people who have no qualifications, have no democratic legitimacy. They were literally just born or they got married to someone and they're just human beings. They shit and piss and fart like all the rest of us. I don't think they should have less rights than us, but they shouldn't have any more. All right. That's how what do, I think how, anyway. How do we dig out of this um, rabbit hole of uh, politics <laughs> you and the world? And you don't. That's you don't invite Tom Allen. <laughs> That's how you do it. You know it, what? Huh? Let's talk about deadlock. Oh, yeah. You're an actor. Yep. Deadlock was incredible. You like them? Yes. Thanks, Dan. How, how did you get that? <laughs> how did you get that? <laughs> Who books that? I Have you seen the series? Oh, no, no, no. 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 It's, if people haven't seen it, it's a, a murder mystery comedy written by the Cates who did um, Get Kraken and, and the catering show. And it's like broad church but funny yeah. is the general pitch set in a small Tasmanian town. I play Sven Alderman who's a uh, terrible cop. <laughs> Who should not have become a cop? And it was the gig of a lifetime. I just, I just submitted the audition. I know the Kates a little bit. Um, didn't know too much about the project other than it's the Kates, so it was going to be cool and interesting and funny. And I, yes, my boyfriend and I filmed my little audition tape in Warnable, sent it in, and then, and then got the call and, and found out that they wanted me to do it, which was uh, amazing. A because I didn't have to write a new comedy show for, to tour that next year, which I was quite happy about. At B, because it was like I wanted to be an actor originally. That was my big dream. Yeah. Um, and then failed at getting into any acting schools and ended up doing stand-up. And I've now managed to sort of cheat my way uh, into the acting world. And because it's like a medium-sized role, there were times, weeks, when I did, had about one day shooting a week and we weren't allowed to leave Tasmania because of COVID protocols. And it was really just fun, and there was money. There was the budget was in the twenty million range or something like that. Like like that kind of money on an Australian comedy is has almost never happened. Mm. I would argue it's very rare. Um, and to just work with these yeah amazing people was oh god, this is so boring. But if you hear <laughs> an actor see, say I like it was just a great project, we had a great yeah. time. It's like that is boring. But I just loved I loved how edgy it was. I loved how political it was. Sorry not to go there, but it was sort of saying something about uh, Australian society and stuff. And um, and Sven, just the character was just such a gift. Mm. He's just um, a really, really sweet guy and uh, and had a lot of really funny lines. Do you know if that's coming back? I do not know. Mm-hmm. No. They don't tell me that. And it could happen, well, not too many spoilers if people haven't seen it. It could, season two could happen and Sven yeah. might not be involved, mm-hmm. might be in a different location. These are all open questions. Mm. 
But I would love to do more acting, and uh, I haven't had any offers. <laughs> what what would a what would a young Tom Ballard think of? I don't know the successes and failures that you've you've had up to this point. You'd think that guy's gay. <laughs> um, I'm not gay. I'm young. I'm into, I'm into girls. Um, I think I would like to think that he would be pretty stoked. I try to remind myself how stoked I am that I get to do this thing and what I love and the opportunities that I've had. And, you know, of course there's always a voice in your head that wonders like, why aren't you doing it? Why, why didn't this thing happen? Why aren't I doing more? Why aren't I as famous as X? Yada, yada, yada. But that's a very unhealthy, useless voice. The much more important voice and this is, I think, this is true for everyone. Is to listen to the voice that like just looks at what you have and how lucky you are, and, and reminds yourself to enjoy that. Mm. And um, and yeah, I just I love being creative. I love that I get to to do the thing that I get to do. And as I say, the older I get, the more appreciative I am of this idea of making people laugh. Yeah, like I think for a while it was never really about <laughs> the audience or yeah. making them laugh. It was yeah. about me and me expressing myself and succeeding and like, you know, working my way up the showbiz ladder or whatever. But now it's like literally, like I just did a gig in Geelong last night in a bar. It was really random, but I just, I just, it was just a fun show and I just made a lot of people laugh and people said very nice things to me afterwards. And it's just like, it's important to hang on to that Mm. feeling that that is important, you know, even if I'm not hosting my own TV show or whatever, I'm doing that for those people directly. And that's a nice thing to do. You said yeah. young Tom would say, "Oh man, he's gay." Why? Why would young Tom say that? I'm gay. No, I know that. <laughs> oh, okay. but, but why would you said young Tom would say that? Oh, I'm assuming this is a young Tom before I came yeah, out. Yeah, yes, yeah, in yeah. which he was very keen to make sure that no one thought that he was gay. Right, that's what. And I And so he's to. like, "That's not the future me because I'm, I'm mad for <laughs> pussy." Yeah, you were very broy back then. No, I was never broy. I was doing musical <laughs> theatre. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I did a very, I was both didn't want to be discovered as gay and was also doing a terrible job of not doing gay things like musical theatre, like hanging out with other gay people. Why didn't you want it to be open to come out? Yeah. Was it family, friends or was it? No, no, it's just, you know, it's funny looking back. You know, I've been very fortunate in that very supporting and loving family and friends. But at that time, grew up in country Victoria. Right. Oh, that makes yes. sense. Yes. Yeah. Pretty removed that. from it all. You just didn't, I just Taboo. didn't want it. Yeah, it was sort of like I, I didn't have any particular ill will towards gay people or anything. It was just like, ugh, this seems like a hassle <laughs> and I'd rather just be normal. You know, when right. you're, a, you're near a teenager, you're just desperate to... To fit in. To fit in and mm. be normal. And, and you know, I'm surrounded by homophobic language on a regular basis. All my friends who have since been very lovely and supportive and would acknowledge that they were saying messed up yeah, stuff at that time yes. uh, were saying, yeah, homophobic language. So the only association you have with gay people is things that are bad. Mm. So, yes, rejecting that is was is a pretty natural thing to do. But I And I think that there came a point where I was like, oh, well, I definitely am gay and now I, I'm just going to stay in the closet for a bit longer to try and figure out how to, how to go about this and then came out when I was 18 just as I was finishing high school. Well, did you move out of uh, regional Victoria, you said? Yes, Re- yeah, moved to Melbourne pretty soon after that in 2008. Yeah, the, wow. the, the next year. How does comedy kick into that? Well, I started doing comedy when I was 14. Wow. Doing high school comedy competition called Class Clowns. Nice. Which is too early, I would argue, for anyone to do Class comedy. Clowns, yes. <laughs> Who wants to listen to a 14-year-old do stand-up? <laughs> anyway, hey, I, I got man, addicted. 14 years are funny. They are funny. They are funny. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're probably TikTok stars now who are, yes, posting at 13 or whatever <laughs> and have more followers than me. Mm. Um, 
Yes. But then stand-up was just a thing I was doing before I was going to go to acting school and become the greatest actor of my generation. And then that didn't happen and now I did stand-up and now I'm, now I'm here. <laughs> you know, when Nightly was cancelled, that... I remember it well. That hurt. That hurt me because I'm like, oh, it was, it was giving a platform to other comedians mm. as well and, you know, it, it you just... Australia didn't really have that really. Mm. I mean, you had Rove, but, you know, there was no sort People of comedians yeah. Yeah, fr- fronting that sort of sort of show. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, a show that I'm on reflection very proud of. We made a lot of shit. We were yeah. still, it took us a long time to figure out what the show was. Yeah. It was killing us. We didn't have enough. It was too much content yeah. for such a small team. Yeah. There were a whole bunch of reasons why. You know, it probably did cost too much money for the ABC, the amount of budget they were dedicating it to it. But when it was funny, I thought it was really, really funny. I thought it was really risky. It took a lot of risks. And and as you say, it gave platform put stand-up on, yeah. on the ABC, which wasn't happening. I think we had about 40 stand-ups over the course of the show, a lot of them doing their first ever TV spots. Yeah. Um, and Greg Glass in a platform as well. Yes, That's which great. is crucial. <laughs> more people need to know about Mr. Oily. <laughs> And this this is the thing, uh, David, between us, we had two weeks. We got cancelled on a Tuesday and then we had two weeks on air of this show, mm-hmm. this daily show. Mm-hmm. So we had two weeks of an ABC budget to make a show that we knew was going to get cancelled. <laughs> so we just went kind of mental. And we just and in those well, last then, two weeks I thought we did some very, very yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. And I'm very proud of that. Um, and I wish more people had watched it. And, you know, it's one thing to cancel tonightly. I think that the, the issue that people have is that there was nothing to replace that or that, that, that same dedication to discovering new talent on the ABC that was going to be a bit edgy and say something um, does not seem to have necessarily been filled in the same way, which is a shame. Yeah. It was also a very chaotic time at the ABC. There were, like the people who were there when we started weren't there at the end. People leaving and departments were being merged and now they're doing this new restructure where everything's either news or content. I don't know how that works. So it's, um, yeah, it's a wild, wild time. So what's what's next for you then? Great question. What I keeps to... you going? Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should kill myself. <laughs> um, no, I the 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 possibility of making something great, the chance to work on something great, yeah. r- still writing new jokes is still the best feeling. Doing a new joke for the first time and it working is still awesome. If, if yeah. I'm doing that on a massive stage or in front of you know thirty people, yeah. it's still awesome. I still love writing jokes. I still love figuring out how jokes work. And, you know, the opportunity to explore more creative freedom is very motivating. So, yeah, I really want to move into, I want to explore theatre. I've written some comedy plays before. I really like that. I would love to write a play. That's still definitely on my list of things to do. Um, And to try and work a bit more overseas. I think, yeah, I, I was just at the UK recently for the Edinburgh Fringe and, there's certainly a sensibility there that kind of makes sense. And gigging overseas is also a really big thrill. If you can make mm. a, a, an audience who have no idea who you are overseas laugh, that's a really good buzz. Um, and the money, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I, I'm making shitloads of money, but I just need to you know, pay my mortgage and such. You know what? I had all these sort of you know preconceived notions of how this would go today and it was 
a good chunk of it was very serious. <laughs> <laughs> I would want to go serious, but I don't think it was serious. We were just having conversations. Well, that's right. But, yeah. you know, I didn't really expect us to talk about politics, politics. and the economy. and But no, it's been good. Yeah. It's been a really um, Bella, unex- uh, unexpected uh, conversation, which I really enjoyed. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> to sort of, um, we'll do, we can do a part two where it's yeah, just yeah. You talk about farts or whatever if you want. I really want to address this, and we and we we don't have to talk about it if it's still too too fresh. But um, Cal Wilson passed away only just a couple of weeks ago, mm. which you know I've met her a couple of times, and she's so lovely. Mm. Was, it was very shocking and very sad, and. Um, I'm just wondering if you can share any sort of uh, memories of of Cal. Mm. Harmon never sort of got the opportunity to meet Cal, but if if you met Cal, you would have just loved it. I mean, just the way she dressed alone, she was just so <laughs> colourful, and which sort of matched that personality that she she had as well. Yes, yes. At the time of recording, um, this week is going to be a memorial for sort of her friends in mm. comedy and stuff. And uh, yes, no black. You have to wear something colourful. Yeah, this, this is part of the thing. And, and I'm sure that at that event, lots of people are going to share many, many stories about Cal. And I think there's going to be a lot of laughs and tears and it's going to be very nice and very hard. Mm. Um, very hard to truly articulate or sum up or try and underline just how delightful Cal was and how much she loved people and loved being alive and loved doing comedy and it, it, you know i think i think it hit people really hard because she was just always there she was always there always part of the comedy furniture certainly as long as i've i've been around you know i started comedy in melbourne really in 2009 2008 2009 she'd been she'd already been in the country for about 10 years at that point and she was just she just loved new comedians she was if you i think i think lots of people have been saying if you get booked if you were booked for any gig mm-hmm. and you were a bit like oh god this might be a bit rough if yeah. cal was on the lineup it was going to be fine it was it was either going to be a fun car ride or a fun hang backstage yeah. and you know she was always a pro on stage if she was killing yeah. or dying or whatever she was just she was just herself yeah and i think what's really hit me yeah is all these clips that people have shared particularly clips with her discussing her own philosophy when it came to comedy mm. and what she wanted audiences to feel when they left her show. She wanted everyone to feel better afterwards. And Cal would occasionally go after certain targets and she didn't like assholes and she didn't suffer fools and so she did have a bit of bite every now and again. But generally speaking, she could make great comedy out of something that she loved or something that she thought was really funny. Like there was a, there was a level of positivity and joie de vivre in her life that came through in her comedy that was really, really special. Um, and I think, yes, I think, I think that's what I'm going to miss the most really. And it's just, you know, she's 53, she's way too young and her son's left behind. So yes, I've been thinking about that a lot, that kind of philosophy. And, um, Zoe Coombs Ma posted, uh, hashtag WWCWD, what would Cal Wilson do? (laughs) Which is like kind of a good way to, to think about some things every now and again. It's like, what would... What would Cal do with this situation? She'd probably make yeah. the people in the room feel more welcome. She'd make a joke. She'd she'd welcome you into uh, her heart or yeah. the vibe a lot more. And um, yeah, my running joke with her was I showed her how to use Uber, and uh, she just she, every time she, she sometimes she just texts me Uber. <laughs> she just booked an Uber. <laughs> I was like, "You're welcome, Cal. Enjoy." 
And I always remember whenever I see her, she, she, when she was in New Zealand, she was in this, um, like one of those theatre groups that go into schools that teach kids, talk about issues that kids face, yeah. like sex and, uh, and stuff. And the group was called Full On. <laughs> And I just, that made me laugh so much. And whenever I'd see her, I'd say, what was the name of that group? And she would deliver it every yeah. time going, full on, yeah. which I assume the group did. So that made me laugh a lot. Um, but, yeah, she was she was the best and she leaves a very, very big hole in the in the comedy industry. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've met her a few times over the years, mm. but as recently as, 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 recently as this year, um, so I've always had like, I've told this story before on the podcast, I've always had this sort of, social anxiety mm. about you know going up to people and talking to strangers which is you know we've done over nearly 70 episodes of talking to strangers now mm. so which is just bizarre that i have a podcast but i was at the comedy republic uh this year at the um for the comedy festival mm-hmm. and i had just seen michelle brazier's show yep i was about to leave for another show but i saw kirsty Wiebeck and cal wilson seen in the bar mm-hmm. i'm like I went to leave down the stairs. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to go back and just go up to Kirsty, even though she's, you know, having a drink with Cal and just say how much I loved Kirsty's stand-up. Mm. So I did that. But then after I left, I just sort of realised, oh, I didn't actually say anything to Cal. Right. And now, you know, she's passed. And I'm like, I just sort of really sort of regret that I didn't actually say anything oh. to, to Cal at, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, Cal would care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that Something that Damien Callanan said that, because um, I told Damien this and he, and he said, you know, Cal would have actually loved that you were showering Kirsty in, in praise. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's totally true. Yeah. Those, yes, those two were extremely close and that would that would mean a lot to her. But she's just she's had a huge, strong sense of herself and, um, and, yeah, and it's funny because I've sort of like, was I actually, was it, how close was I with Cal? Because I, you know, the, I would go for long periods with not seeing her at all. We just wouldn't yeah. gig together or for whatever. We, we, we just, And then I realised, well, I just feel like she was one of my best friends or that I was really close to her because every time I saw her, she treated me as if I was one of the, the best friends in the world. And I think just by the sheer outpouring of love um, and happy memories and photos of, of Cal over the past couple of weeks, it's just evidence of someone who lived their life like that, like as if everyone was, was pretty much welcomed and, and it was a best friend. Yeah. So, you know, for uh, there's nothing good about uh, the fact that Cal has left and it, it's those classic, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone kind of thing. But if there is any good that has come out of it, it is a whole bunch of people remembering how much they loved her and how much that we love yeah. each other yeah. and and how much we want to, yeah, help each other out, I suppose, and and remember perhaps for all our bitchiness and pettiness, uh, as, as as the comedy community is quite famous for, in moments like these and reflections on on the fact that we get to we built this community with each other, you know, valuing that is is probably a positive thing, yeah. Mm. Which is which is exactly yeah. what Cal would want, yeah, to do. That's you know right. what I mean? Like yeah. leaving that legacy behind yeah. to bring everybody together uh, and recognizing, reminding ourselves that we're lucky to have each other in our lives. That's that's a very Cal Wilson vibe. Yeah, man. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I do miss, I do miss her. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's well, a sad way to, you know, up sad and sort of upbeat way to end the podcast. This but- this has been the least <laughs> funny uh, installment <laughs> of any podcast yeah. ever. I got to say, but we've learned. Uh, it was fun. We've learned. We've had yeah. too much. Uh, yeah, you know, information. Go. How about this? Well, to end the podcast, what what are the rules of life that you live by? Wowza. 
Um, do I, I do I have rules? I do rules have rules for losers. <laughs> rules are for losers, man. I break them all. Look, I mean, it's very dull, but the golden rule is is something close to a good way to live your life. You know, you try and treat treat otherwise mm. treat others the way you would like to be treated. That is probably pretty decent. Mm. Um, although, of course, that runs into the question of like, well, what if someone's really, really, really bad? Do you treat them the same way that that you would want to be treated because you're not really, really, really bad? Like, yeah. you know, I think there are some people who uh, are terrible and and particularly when we talk about political figures in society, I think that there are people who get away with a lot of stuff that should actually be hated far more than they are. But anyway, um, but perspective is the main thing that I try and uh, keep in mind at all times. Yeah. It's it's the thing that's gotten me out of particular funks and depress- depressions and just sort of trying to put my problems, trying to really interrogate how serious the problems I'm worried about at the moment are, put them in the grander context of all of human suffering in the world at the moment and throughout history, and a reminder that I've been through tough times before and have come out the other side mm. and trying to contrast whatever I'm worried about with all the great things in my life at any one time. This can be easier said than done. Some people's, you know, depression can be an absolute beast and can fuck you up really badly and no matter no, no amount of positive thinking can deal with that. But at least in my experience, yes, a reminder of how lucky I am to be alive and have the things that I have and a reminder that, you know, all things must pass can be quite helpful. Well, it's a good way to great know. note. Good job, man. Is that anything? Yeah. Right, okay. yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Thank you so much Thanks for, for being here, man. Being here. No worries. Yeah.